some, I think some believers, some Christians are uh, not as concerned about things like abortion. They don't uh, take it seriously as an, as an issue, I think, um, in the sense of some people just don't get it. They don't quite understand. It is an important issue, as is, uh, you know, uh, the sanctity of life is important. Um, biblical marriage is important. Uh, a lot of the other issues uh, that we see are important. Um, the most important thing, though, is how we as believers truly live um, in order to be light before the world. You know, if you remember last week, I told you, and, and I, I will say it again, and since our church is going to be 13 years old in February, this will be uh, the third president. So we have president-elect right now. I don't know if that's official, but that's what's being shared. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, um, that will be the third president since We've been doing the church, and I've said the same thing for 13 years, as I said to you last week, that um, it doesn't really matter who ends up in the White House um, because we have a king, right, regardless, and he is always our king. We're sojourners. We're passing through, and that's the thing we need to remember the most, um, and I'm not on Facebook, so I don't, don't feel guilty. Don't have the guilty look on your face. I don't know what you've been posting. I'm just simply saying that's always the truth that we have to understand. Um, our responsibility, regardless, is always the same, and that's to be praying because we have to remember there's power in prayer. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. God is the one we have to, live, have to pray to that he would, uh, if you will, convict the heart of whoever's going to be in the White House about issues that concern God. Um, and those things are extremely important. Um, especially as an African-American man, I keep telling you the reason abortion is so important to me is because every time I show up, 60 plus percent of the babies being killed are African-American babies. That's an issue for me because African-Americans make up 13 percent of the population, down from almost 20 percent after the um, Civil War. Uh, you know, it, it, so anyway, I'm not going to get into all of that today. We vote issues. We don't vote for men. You know, I'm not really concerned about a man. You know, this is at the end of the day, we leave this behind, too, by the way. OK, so you don't need to like uh, if you are excited about the results, you don't need to overly be trusting in those things. If you are saddened by the results, you don't really need to be as saddened as maybe you are. You need to look to the Lord quickly and stay focused on who we are and what we're doing. Amen. Amen. And there needs to be unity within the body as well. So. These are just the truth. So we, we and if, again, and if you don't have a heart to pray for whoever goes in, you have a heart issue or lack of a biblical understanding. That's just the way it is. All right. That's the truth. Uh, you don't have to agree with me either because I'll stand for the truth whether you do. Or not. I know you do. I'm just simply saying we must pray. Um, you vote your issues and then you pray and you trust the Lord uh, because if you don't think he's in control you forgot something or maybe you never knew it. <laughs> hey, don't you know that biblically speaking, the Bible even says sometimes he gives them the ones that they want. He gave them Saul because they wanted a king like the other nations. Well, they got one, you know. So these are things we have to understand. Um, God is in control. Revelation chapter 15. If you stand to your feet, we'll read it and then we'll dive in. And I just wanted to say that up front so we can adjust our hearts to always be focused on the Lord Jesus. Um, always be focused on the Lord Jesus, man. You know, I want to wear a Jesus sign. That's why if I put T-shirts on, it usually reflects something, 
you know, I like that one right there that's green that says unfinished um, because, you know, I got one that I like wearing it because I'm unfinished. And people say, well, what's that mean? Jesus is working on me. Do you know him? You know, I mean, you can get some conversation started, you know. Um, you know, that's what I want to wear. I'm always wearing something Jesus-wise or something blank like this. I don't usually wear other people's stuff. Yeah, I just don't. It's just my, you know. But if it's got something to do with the Lord, I know I'm off track. Verse 1, say amen. amen. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O king of the saints, who shall not fear you, uh, fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. And after these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. And then one of the living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And so, Lord God, we, we thank you. And we ask that you would speak to us now, removing away from our hearts and minds all of the things that hinder us, the cares of this life, the burdens of this world, even political things that may hinder, even a, 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 an offense of something that I've already said, maybe, in the heart of someone in the room, Lord, that you would settle that down. Uh, Lord, that we can hear what you have to say by your spirit. And Lord God, we know that judgment's coming to this world. We know judgment's coming to America at some point. So we lift up the leaders of this country. Even now, Lord God, I pray that for the current president, president-elect, whoever actually officially will take over in January, uh, Lord God, we already now pray for the heart of both of those men, Lord God, that their uh, hearts would be turned to you, that their policies would reflect what would honor you. Most importantly, Lord God, that you would not hinder the work of, of your spirit in the church uh, through either one of these administrations, that the church would have the ability to stand uh, and to proclaim your truth in this world, to see many, many come to salvation, Lord God. And uh, we do thank you for all that you're doing. Lord, we even lift up uh, for the ladies who kept their babies. I pray for provision for them. Uh, Lord, if there's a way to use our congregation to continue to minister and provide for them, Lord, show us and reveal that so that we may be a part of that, Lord God. Uh, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so take your seat. Um, Remember, the last time we were together, we saw what I would title the wine of wrath the previous two weeks, because in chapter 14, remember over in chapter 14, verse 10, he said, 
uh, for those who uh, worship the beast and took his mark, that they would drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And that's reflected throughout the chapter 14, but goes into chapter 15 as well. But none of these things are new. The wrath of God has been promised from, from, from old and ancient times all the way through in the scripture that that is what's coming to the world that has rejected him. Um, and so that we see these things coming to pass, especially as we now go into this chapter. Now, what we have to remember as we approach this chapter two is it's hard to be dogmatic about the chronology of the book of Revelation because if it's difficult for a, a holy God who stands outside of time to open up these things and show them to John and for John to fully understand them, these things were overwhelming for John, which is why we get these parenthetical inserts that reveal greater detail to the things that we've been seeing as we go through the book of Revelation. Are you with me? So you got to remember in chapter one, the Bible says that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And if you remember way back, this is week 48. So you got to go like 40, 43 weeks ago or something. And remember that we said the literal translation of that is that John came to be in the spirit unto the day of the Lord. And it seems to imply not that he was just in the spirit on Sunday or the Lord's day, but he was literally in the spirit carried away to the day of the Lord because it seems as though John is seeing things on location because often John is seeing things take place on the earth. Then he's seeing things take place in heaven and he's seeing all of these different things take place. And in order for John to see these things, obviously John is now in the spirit, not bound by the body or even the space time continuum anymore, nor trapped in the fabric of space time in which we are trapped into this thing we see and going on in our lives he's pulled out of that and he's able to go literally John has hopped over us if you think in the way things work in our brains linear time right John wrote this AD 95 AD 100 almost 2,000 years ago he's leapfrogged us into the future where he's seeing things and writing things that even now, 2,000 years later, as we're reading them, still have not happened, things that are still in the future. And when I try to explain it to you, some of you are smarter than me. My brain probably starts smoking. If you see smoke, it's because this is, this is huge for me, and it's exciting at the same time because I know that God is so powerful. For God, it's like things that 1,000 years ago are like yesterday to him. And this stuff that is in the future, it's like, you know, it's happening already because he's outside of all of that. He sees the, the beginning from the end. He can see them both at the same time. It's amazing. That's the God we serve, isn't it? So John is seeing these things take place. And then he, he gives us greater detail in certain pictures. And so as we begin to look at this, these things are also kind of interesting because as we go through it, we see um, angels dressed a certain way, going through certain acts of what we might say are formality. And it's like these ceremonies. And, and, and some of you can picture it this way. Many of you came out of traditional church settings where it was a little bit more formal than what we may have this morning. OK. And because of that, there, there are things that you grew up with that you still remember, like if you came out of the Catholic church. There was not only the, um, the motions of stand up, sit down, but there was the trappings of all of the stuff you saw, the, 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 the candles and the incense and the, and the robes and the statues and the songs, the formal stuff. And, and wherever you've been, even 
even for me, coming up in the Baptist church, there was, there was the, the dress and the, the layout of things and, and how things were carried out and stuff like that. I still remember those formalities. How many of you remember stuff like that? Yeah. Um, and so as I'm reading, even in the book of Revelation, I'm wondering, Lord, I, it almost feels like some formalities. And I get the sense in the, that in heaven, these things are going to be carried out in such a way that I think are going to be very spectacular for us. Which is hard for us to envision. Heaven is going to be exciting, not boring. You're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be there worshiping, and in comes these interesting dress angels, and they're doing some, what in the world is happening now, you know? And what are they doing over there? And they walk, and, and everybody's got something that they're doing before the Lord in their way. All these various songs, which we're going to talk about some of them today, that each group has, and it's going to be constant worship, constant sounds, constant lights, constant all kinds of stuff, and you will never be bored. We're going to be up there like, man, look at this. And I'll look at you. Each one of you will have our uniform and your crowns might look slightly different because some of y'all prayer warriors are going to have big, heavy crowns, you know, and, and whatnot. And it's just going to be an amazing scene. And so as we read through these things, you can only imagine what's coming for us. So three main points. We're going to see the sign of God's wrath in verse one. We're going to see the celebration of God's wrath in verses two through four. And we're going to see the glory of God's wrath, if you can imagine such a thing, in verses 5 through 8. Verse 1, look at it with me. It says, then I saw another sign in heaven. And notice that this sign is great and it's marvelous. It's very interesting. We keep seeing this word sign. Um, and it's interesting because the word sign is, is, is seen throughout the New Testament. It's translated sign 50 times, miracle 23 times, wonder three times, and even token one time. But it, it literally means that by which a person or thing is distinguished from others and is known. One of the implications of its meaning is when God sends someone out, they are giving certain miracles or signs to work like the apostles did to draw a distinction, distinction on them that they are men of God that have been sent out on his behalf. And so we see this throughout um, the New Testament. In fact, the first time it's used in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, when the Jews came to Jesus and they said, we, we want to see a sign. Look at it. It says, then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Even the way it's worded, it's almost as if they, they come very boldly and say, look, you need to show us a sign. Hey, we're here. It's time for you to show us a sign so that we can know that you are who you say that you are. And well, notice what Jesus said to them. He responded and answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. What? I like that, don't you? Why could he call them that? Well, because one, their hearts were closed to God because they were corrupt. And they shouldn't have been asking him for a sign because he himself was a sign. He had already performed the signs that they should have been looking for because the word tells us what to look for, right? Well, they should have known. Well, wait a minute. What have we seen? Well, he opens the eyes of the blind. He opens the ears of the deaf. The lame are leaping like deer. The lepers have been cleansed. Some have been raised from the dead, okay? He bears all the signs that the scripture gave of the Messiah. And then he could look back after uh, and say he came in on a donkey born in Bethlehem 
of a virgin, whether they wanted to believe it or not, there was proof that a virgin had born a son. The angels had been proclaiming it. The men came from the east. All of the things pointed to the fact that he is, and he is that we know, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that was prophesied that would come. And so they missed it. So he says, an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is the sign of the resurrection. Notice he says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, you want a sign? Here's your sign. Destroy this temple and watch me raise it up. What do you mean? This temple, it took 40 years to build this temple. He was talking about his body. Remember that, right? Destroy it. This is the temple of God, he was saying. Destroy it, and I'll raise it up. You want a sign? I'll show you the sign of the resurrection. The next time, well, the first time it's used, I should say, in the book of Revelation was in chapter 12. There were two signs given in chapter 12. One, a woman pregnant with a child. Y'all remember that, right? Two, a red fiery dragon ready to devour the child. The, ch- the woman was Israel, the child was the Lord Jesus, and the dragon represented Satan, right? And it, it was displaying the saga that has been playing out ever since the garden when God prophesied how he would redeem man. And so we see these signs are put there to distinguish things from others. And so here it says in verse 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, and this one is great and marvelous. This sign that we're going to see now is a sign that is confirming or distinguishing the time that we're now reading from all other times. In other words, it's time for the wrath of God to be poured out. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute. In in fact, the final wrath of God is we're going to see. This is a time like never before. We've seen some of God's wrath, but not like what we're about to see. And notice it says that this sign is great and marvelous. And again, I got ahead of myself earlier, but I think it's great and marvelous because of the way it's being displayed as these angels are carrying this thing out with a bit of formality. And it's hard for us to envision what this looks like. But they came forth. There's probably some cheering going on. We know that one angel came down to earth back in chapter 10, put one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. And he said, there shall be no more delay. Y'all remember that? We saw, y'all remember that? We saw in chapter 11 how they proclaimed the kingdom and they celebrated God because he's taken his wrath. He's going to reign. The Lord Jesus is going to reign. We saw all of those things, all of those pictures, all of that, that formality that we've seen throughout Scripture here in the book of Revelation. Blows our mind. The formality of how Jesus portrays himself in chapter 1. He betrays himself as one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which represent the church, who, who holds the, 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 um, the seven stars in his right hand, which are the messengers of the church, who has eyes of flame of fire. Y'all remember all of that stuff? We saw the formality of the, beautifully, the beautiful uh, display of the throne room in chapter 4, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the angel in chapter 5 proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to take the scroll out of the Father's hands? And, and look, why did they do all of that? Nobody was worthy. We already know that. But no, it had to be proclaimed because God likes to do things a certain way. And so it had to be said, hey, is anybody? Nope, nobody. And Jesus steps forward. I love that. You know, sometimes it's kind of nice to see these things played out. It's a wonderful time in heaven. Heaven's going to be amazing. It's great and it's marvelous because these seven guys show up. And to all of us who are in heaven who will observe it, we will say, ah, time has come. It's about to be wrapped up. And notice that these seven angels, he says seven angels having 
the seven last plagues, it speaks of the fact that uh, it, it's the final plagues. Why do we say that? Because number one is seven last plagues. And in them, it says the wrath of God is complete. And we know that seven is the number of completion throughout Scripture. Particularly, we've seen it over and over and over. There's so many sevens in the book of Revelation. Your homework is you should go count them. But what this tells us is that this brings, listen, these dudes, these seven angels, will bring the wrath of God to completion upon the earth. And that's going to be amazing in and of itself. Because it's not just wrath. Listen, this word used here for wrath is slightly different than what's normally used for God's wrath. Often the word that is used speaks of um, kind of a reserved wrath, something that's under control. God's wrath is typically in control. When, when, when Jesus was angry, he had righteous indignation in the Gospels. He went into the temple and cleansed it. He turned over the money changers' tables and ran them out. Why? Because they were making his father's house a den of thieves, and it was supposed to be a house of prayer. What they were doing is running a racket. Y'all know this. They were making people change their money into temple money at an exchange rate. They were making 20% off the top, then making them go pay for um, uh, sacrifices that were also marked up when there was nothing wrong with the sacrifices they brought, but the priests wouldn't approve them, so they had to go buy a new one. They then traveled all the way there to worship at the temple with the little money they done saved up, and they get ripped off by the priests when they get there. By the time they worship, they, they, they hot, they upset, you know, can't even worship in spirit and truth, right? You remember that. So he, with his righteous indignation, cleansed the temple. But remember, nobody got hurt. So God's wrath is very different than man's wrath. Man's wrath never produces the righteousness of God because we can't control our wrath. How many of you men have had to patch walls in your house at some point because of your wrath, right? It always makes a mess. And some of the women can raise their hands too because y'all throw stuff. Yeah, so, you know, but we all get through it. But this word for wrath is different speaking of God because it, speak, it says it means passion and anger, heated anger. It means anger to the point of boiling over. That's what it's speaking of. In other words, this final wrath of God is a wrath that like we haven't seen from him before. And there's implications of that later down in this chapter. So this wrath is coming forth. And all the way through the Bible, it's been prophesied of. All the way back in the Old Testament and even the New. Paul in Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, just one of the many verses. So wrath is coming upon this world, and it's heated wrath. In other words, God is not holding back any longer. He's bringing it to a completion. Well, notice as we go into the next point, we see the celebration of God's wrath in verses 2 through 4. Can you imagine celebrating it? Notice it says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast and over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And it's very interesting as we begin to go into this. We're going to see down later that these angels are coming out of the temple of God. And so we see all of these things, and it begins to paint kind of a picture. It's painting a picture of the throne room of God in heaven and the layout of it. God is very detailed. But what we know, according to Hebrews, listen, y'all know this, is that what's up there 
is the reality. And what God gave Moses to make down here was a pattern of that. Remember? So the tabernacle was patterned after the heavenly scene. And it's very interesting. So we see the sea of glass. We don't really know what it is. But when we look at the pattern of it that we have on earth, we can kind of begin to draw a little bit of a conclusion. Because in the pattern on earth, we had this tabernacle that was curtained off in a rectangle shape. And it had an outer court that you really couldn't enter into. But you could come to the, to the, to the, to the gate of that and to worship with your animal. And the priest would meet you there. And he would take the knife give it to you, you would have to put your hand on the, on the lamb and cut the neck and let the lamb bleed out. And it was, it was very dramatic because it's the symbol of your, you, uh, your sins being transferred to this innocent sacrifice. So you would get in a picture of this, okay, in the lamb. And then the priest would take that lamb in and it would be the, the, the place where the priest would butcher right by the, blonde, the bronze altar where the lamb would then be sacrificed. But see, just beyond that, was this bronze lava in which the priest himself would have to wash in because the priest is a sinner and he has to be cleansed and go through a process himself before he, he, he serves and then he has to wash as he's going through the process. Y'all know this, right? Beyond that would be this uh, 15 by 45 foot rectangular structure divided into two 15 by 15 compartments and it's called the holy place the second compartment is the holy of holies y'all should know this but inside the first one you would see certain things you would see a table of showbread representing the 12 pieces of bread representing the 12 tribes of israel in heaven though we know that there's 24 Elders, we know that, right? Which we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 22. Then there is the, the um, altar of incense where they have to constantly, the high priest, offer incense in the holy place. We found that that's actually what's happening in heaven with these angels who are offering incense with the prayers of us, the saints, right? Before the throne of God. Then the menorah is sitting there, which has to be lit all the time, which we see in heaven. It represents the seven spirits of God and the Holy Spirit's work within the body of believers at any given time that belong to God. And it's all symbolic of what's up there. And then inside the Holy of Holies, where the priest goes once a year, is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top, which really represents the throne of God. Inside that thing is the tablets of the law that Moses was given to Moses by God, some of the manna, which represents God's provision and the bread of life even, and then the staff, which represents, you know, how God led them and, and worked miracles in the Old Testament. All that's within it, and it represents the place where God the Father is uh, sitting on his throne in heaven, Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, where his glory dwelt in that tabernacle. But going back out to the courtyard, there was the bronze laver where the priest would wash up. And it speaks of cleansing and, and purity and being cleansed constantly as he's doing the work. Here, as we look at this, there's a representation of that cleansing work. It says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory are standing on it. And I think that there's a picture of cleansing. Now, in the New Testament, we don't go through the, the, the ritual of washing anymore like they did at the temple. We don't have to wash to be clean. We are cleansed literally by the Lord himself. In fact, several places Jesus talks about it. One place in particular, Jesus, John 15, 2 through 4, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, he works with it to, 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 that it may produce more fruit even. And he says, you are already clean by the word which I've spoken to you. In the process of the vine dresser taking care of the vine, he had to lift it up off the ground and cleanse off the, the dirt to get rid of the bacteria so that the vine could be healthy and continue to grow. And then he would prune it and work on it and it would flourish into a wonderful blind. Vine, But Jesus says, you, disciple, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, I'm going to clean you. I'm going to prune you. And I'm going to produce fruit in you if you abide in me. And so literally, he washes us. How does he do it? Ephesians, Paul mentions it, chapter 5. He says, husbands, and I'm not going to go into a marriage teaching here, but there's symbolism. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? That he may produce something. Notice that he may sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of the water of the word, that he, may, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, Jesus says, I love my bride, the church. I cleanse her through my word. And he does that in various ways. When you sit alone with him and, and, and spend time in his word, when he un, un, gives someone the, the charisma of the Holy Spirit or the gift of the Holy Spirit to teach in, in, in a corporate setting, he's constantly washing his bride through the word. The word corrects, the word cleanse, the word cleanses our mind and our hearts and builds our faith as the Lord does that work in us. It's a washing and a cleansing and a purifying that he may present himself with a perfect bride. It's a work that he performs in us and that he's constantly performing in us. Side note, guys, our wives should be growing and developing and coming more fruitful and dynamic based on our ministry to them. Now, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Um, so this is what we see happening as the Lord works in us. Now, as we look here, somehow in the, in the heavenly reality, there's this sea of glass, which we've seen a couple of times. And those who get to stand on it have been purified by the Lord Jesus. Now, there's a particular group standing here today in verse 2. Let's look at it. This is not necessarily us, the church that's already been redeemed, who grow up in the rapture. Notice it says, and those who have the victory over the beast. So these are Christians from the tribulation that got saved on the tribulation over his image. And over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. In other words, these are the ones who got victory in the tribulation in that they didn't give up the faith and take the mark of the beast. It doesn't mean that they survived the tribulation. Most of them were probably killed and beheaded. But they kept the faith and they never worshiped the beast or took the mark of the beast, even if it meant death. And this was difficult for them because they couldn't buy nor sell. They couldn't go and get fresh water and goods and loafs of bread or, or, or anything like that. Um, medical, medical supplies, these things were cut off from them because they refused to take the mark of the beast. Maybe some of them had supplies that had been stored prior to all of that. I know some of y'all preppers are probably leaving stuff for people and, and they found it and they were able to survive somehow. And that's how they got through. But they didn't take the mark of the beast. They worshiped Jesus Christ. And for that reason, they will stand on the sea of 
glass, purified by him. But not only are they purified by him, they are going to celebrate God's wrath. Because notice it says that they are having the harps of God. They're given musical instruments. Why? Because they are about to celebrate. They're about to worship. Notice what it says in verse 3. And it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Now, what's the song of Moses? Well, we first see the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, but we're not going to turn there. And it's hinted towards again in Deuteronomy chapter 32. But if you read it, listen, if you read it, the song of Moses declares that God is a man of war. Because he goes to war on behalf of those whom he loves and he delivers them. So it's a song celebrating the wrath of God who delivers his people from the works of the enemy. And it was sung by Moses when God delivered them by bringing them through the sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army in the sea. Y'all remember this stuff? And Moses celebrates that reality. But then notice, not just the song of Moses, the servant of God, but and the song of the Lamb, which we saw back in Revelation chapter 5, which is also a song of deliverance because we, the church, can sing that one. And it's a song declaring that you, Lord God, are worthy only you because you redeemed us in your blood. You see, so that's our song of deliverance. And see, when we get to heaven, the worship is going to blow your mind away because we're going to be singing the song of the Lamb. Those who got killed in the tribulation are going to be singing the song of Moses and their own song. The 144,000 are going to be singing, singing a song, and we're going to be cheering each group on with each other as we praising God together. Everybody got their song because Jesus has been faithful all the way from the beginning to the end. So they sing these songs. Look at the words here. It says, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are, are holy. Uh, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifest. Now, we can read through that pretty fast and say, man, that sounds pretty good. But you got to catch this. Because if you notice closely, this, I think, is a very pure form of worship. The kind of worship we're going to experience in heaven because this song has absolutely nothing to do with us. It's all focused on the, the, who he is and what he's done. That's what worship is. Notice it says, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And all nations shall worship before you, for your judgments even have been manifest, which they are in his wrath. And so it's a constant, constant declaration or even uh, uh, singing of who he is and what he's done because he's the only one that is worthy. And this is distinct because some of us are used to some of the older gospel music, some of the older type of worship music where it can get very us focused and it can talk a lot about how we feel and all this kind of stuff and what God's going to do for us and all this kind of stuff. But the true worship is so focused on him that we forget ourselves. That's the best worship. You know, when you when you see him, you're not thinking about yourself anymore because when you see him, you're humble. 
when Isaiah saw him high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, Isaiah responded, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. Look at this glorious God. When we get to heaven and we see him, we're going to think the same thing. We're going to remember the fact that we are sinners and yet we get to stand there and gaze upon him. We don't deserve that. There are better people than us that's going to go into the lake of fire. When we judge based on human standard, there are people who've done less sin than me that's going to go into the lake of fire just because they, they refuse to receive Christ. And I see them and say, man, you're amazing. You're you worthy. You're awesome. And, and I ain't going to be able to get anything out but that for all eternity every time I see him. And it'll be constant worship. This is what worship truly is, y'all. When we come into the house of the Lord, our worship needs to be focused on him, proclaiming who he is and lifting him up. And so there's this celebration going. But not only that, last point, we see the glory of God's wrath in verses 5 through 8. Look at it with me. It says, and after these things, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Very interesting wording here. We see that it's hard for us to fathom a temple in heaven, but there's a place in heaven where the Lord God dwells, obviously. A temple is the dwelling place of the Lord, the Bible says that we are the temple of the, of the living God on earth. He dwells within us, right? That's why we believe that when he who now restrains is taken up, that means that the church is being raptured because he dwells in us. God dwell. we are his temple now. He dwells in us, not these, this building, but in the bodies here of the born again believers, right? And so this is now uh, being put before us as a temple that is now open in heaven, and I want you to notice it says, and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues. So first I want you to notice that these seven angels who have these final seven plagues that's going to be poured out on the earth, they are in the temple with God, and then they come out of that temple. Notice they're clothed in pure bright linen, which speaks of, of uh, ceremonial garb, even priestly garb, having their chests girded with golden bands. All of this speaks that these angels are pure and come out of the presence of God in his temple. But they have the plagues that are about to be poured out on the earth. Notice it says here, then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, if you read in the King James, it says vials, which kind of makes you think of something really small. But these bowls are the type of bowls that were used in the temple worship. And so... They are shallow, wide but shallow bowls, okay? So they're, they're, they're almost, some people like to describe them as saucers, but I think they're more bowl-like than that. But they're designed to carry and to hold the, the drink offering and be poured out very easily, very quickly. And so they're giving these bowls, and these bowls are filled with the wrath of God. Remember, this is the wrath, the, the boiling anger of God, which is about to boil over. That's the description here. This is God's anger, in these bowls, his full wrath. And I want you to notice this because I think that this is my own interpretation of verse 8. So you don't have to subscribe to it. But the temple was filled with the smoke, it says, with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now, we know that this happened back in the Old Testament when Solomon built the temple and he dedicated it. The glory of God filled the temple to the point that the priests couldn't even minister. Do y'all remember reading that? So here, the temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And notice, and no one was able to enter the temple 
till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, my interpretation of this is just, this is just where I'm at, and you don't have to, you don't have to uh, believe it. But I, I think that as I go through Scripture, I try to look for the heart of God and point it out to you. Like I can hear God in the book of, in the Old Testament, prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah pleading with Israel, you know, what have I done? Why don't you love me? I've done everything for you. Yeah, I can hear him saying that to them. I've been a good parent to you. You know, stay with me. And in the book of Revelation, I see that God, God's heart is breaking because of the judgment he has to pour out on the earth. Chapter 8, silence in heaven for the space of 30 minutes. God, God was quiet. There was something they saw on the throne, and everybody just stopped and waited until he gave the command, and the angel took the censer and took some fire from the altar and threw it to the earth, and then wrath began, direct wrath. Y'all remember that? Yeah. Chapter 6 was indirect wrath. Chapter 8 began God's direct wrath. Here in chapter 15, verse 8, it seems to me that God needs to be alone for a moment. Nobody can go in the temple because God is in the temple heartbroken because he never intended to pour his wrath out like this on his creation. Remember, the Bible says that God desires no one to perish, but all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of truth. He did not create hell for man to dwell, but for Satan and his angels. And here his wrath is being bought, uh, brought to full completion. He's about to pour out everything, his heated anger upon the earth. And I think he just needed a moment alone. So it says here, no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues and the seven angels were poured out. It's almost as if God says, you guys go and pour out the wrath. Nobody in the temple right now. I think he's heartbroken. And that's what I see. That's just my interpretation. You don't have to put that in your notes. But it blesses me to think it because... It shows me, because you got to think about it like this. The God we know is merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering. He's slow to wrath, the Bible says, all the way through. Yet everybody want to claim that he's some angry God, and all he wants to do is pour out his vengeance. But that's not the God we read of. And at this final hour, I don't think it's what he wanted to do. Let me give you a glimpse of what's happening now. The first bowl will bring loathsome sores in chapter 16 upon men. The next bowl will turn the sea to blood. The next bowl will turn all the fresh water to blood. The next bowl will, will, will cause men to be scorched. The next one will cause darkness and pain. The fifth one, the sixth one will cause the Euphrates to be dried up for this final battle to begin to take place. And then the seventh bowl will utterly shake the earth in amazing ways. And all of this is about to happen God wants to be alone. He shuts the temple down. Nobody can come in. The angels go forth to pour out his wrath upon the world. And what we need to know as believers, as we go through the time that we live in, is that, again, we're not citizens of earth, but we are to make a difference here. And so wrath is coming to this world and wrath is coming to this country. It's just the way it is. I watch the streets um, on, on, on the video this weekend of things going on, and I saw the devil's flag going through the streets, the rainbow flag, which represents all type of immorality today. And I heard people chanting 
profanity, F the president, um, and carrying the flag. And I said to myself, I said, man, you know, you're going to give America what they want one way or another, and judgment's coming. Um, But we, listen, listen, we, the church, we are different. We're called out. We're separate because we belong to him. We must conduct ourselves differently. And uh, we must represent him in every area, even on our social media. We need to be a united church. We need to pray for one another and pray for our country and pray for the president and pray for God's will to be done. And the thing I pray about the most is that many, many, many more come to know him in this age. Many are going to come to know him during the tribulation, unfortunately. But they will. I should say fortunately. They'll get saved before the final wrath but they'll have to go through so much. I pray they can get saved now. Hey, bow your heads. While your heads are bowed, not too much moving. I want you to, I want you to do something very special now. Worship team, come on up. Worship team, come on. Listen, this is important. If you know someone that you love that does not know Jesus as their Savior, I want you to stand up right now on their behalf, and I'm going to pray for that. And so, Father, we, you see all of us who are standing, Lord God, our hearts break for somebody's life that's not in you, who could potentially, if you were to call us out of here today, that means they go into the tribulation. And so, Lord, we ask, you know, you, you, if you want, you can call the name out loud or you can just think about it inside your heart right now. Father, you know every person who's being represented or the numbers of people who are being represented as those who stand. Lord, we pray that you would work a miracle uh, in their lives, Lord God, that you would convict their hearts very strongly, the people we're praying about and thinking about, Lord God, that you would bring laborers, if, if we can't get to them, laborers constantly by them, Lord God, which would minister to them, Lord God, over and over and over, even if you have to send an angel, Lord God, that they would hear your gospel in their hearts, not intellectually, but they would hear it and sense the conviction of your spirit. I pray that some would get saved that we love. And that we would be able to see that, Lord. We love you today and we thank you. You may be seated. You may be seated because now if there's anyone in the room, every head bowed, every eye closing, you don't know Christ. Maybe we can have an answer to prayer immediately. You can put your hand up now and receive the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of your soul and escape the tribulation. If that's you, you put your hand up today and I'll pray with you. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. And we praise you and honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.